welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. This episode is sponsored by Netting Pros. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Netting professionals specializes in the design, fabrication, and installation of custom netting for backstops, batting cages, dugouts, BP screens, and ball carts. They also design and install digital graphic wall padding, windscreen, turf, turf protectors, dugout benches, dugout cubbies, and more. Netting Professionals is an official partner of the ABCA and continues to provide quality products and services to many high school, college, and professional fields, facilities, and stadiums throughout the country. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Contact them today at 844-620-2707 or info at nettingpros.com. Visit them online at www.nettingpros.com or check out Netting Pros on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. Make sure to let CEO Will Miner know that the ABCA sent you. Now on to the podcast. Next up on the ABCA podcast is ex-CIA agent Mark Polymeropoulos. Mark spent 26 years in the CIA before retiring from the Senior Intelligence Service in June 2019. His positions included field and headquarters operational assignments covering the Middle East, Europe, Eurasia, and counterterrorism. Mark is the recipient of the Distinguished Intelligence Medal, the Intelligence Commendation Medal, and the Intelligence Medal of Merit. His book, Clarity and Crisis, is available June 8th. The book covers what he learned in his time in the CIA and has some phenomenal stories that anyone can use to help them become a better leader. Mark is also a huge baseball fan and baseball parent. He gave a phenomenal talk for the virtual clinic on the parallels of working for the CIA and coaching baseball. In this episode, we discuss being a baseball parent, his path to the CIA, his time outside the United States, how he would fix the current climate, parallels of leadership in the CIA and baseball, how to handle pressure, and tips on how to not bring work home. Let's welcome Mark Polymeropoulos to the podcast. Here with Mark Polymeropoulos, 26 years in the CIA, and um, spoke at our virtual convention this year, and then uh, book uh, Finding Clarity in the Shadows is coming out. I, it's it's about ready to come out, correct? That's right. So so the you know the, the, my principle is Finding Clarity in the Shadows. The book is actually called officially called Clarity in Crisis: okay. Leadership Lessons from the CIA, and it's coming out on June 8th under kind of the Harper Collins uh, you know publishing house. I am. Super excited. I'm going to do tons of media. Um, it talks all about kind of the leadership lessons I learned from the CIA, but but in a in a very crafty fashion, I, I wove in tons of baseball stories um, because baseball has been such a part of part of my life and my family's life. So it's a lot of baseball, a lot of a lot of intelligence operations. It's going to be fun. Yeah. And I, I thought that was the best thing about the virtual talk that you gave because you did weave baseball in with it. Um, and there there are some parallels. We'll get into that. I, obviously, sure. what you did for a living is way more stressful than than coaching a baseball game. But uh, I did appreciate all the parallels that you brought to it. No, for sure. You know, it, it's interesting. You talk about stress. So so my son played high school baseball and he's he's uh, he's playing in college now. Unfortunately, he's uh, he tore his labrum. So he's out this year. But 
I went to a high school baseball game last night in my hometown. Um, incredible James Madison High School Warhawks. They're, they're, you know, one of the top 20 teams in the country. There must have been five or 600 people there. But I actually enjoyed the game because I wasn't watching my kid play. I wasn't nervous. I'd be, I would have been a wreck. And I watched the parents of some of the players. I was like, oh, I remember that feeling. But I, I had a good time just sitting back and enjoying. No, no, uh, no pressure on me or, uh, or on my kid. You know, I'm, I'm grateful that we met two years ago at the Virginia Clinic. And, and shout out to Tim Mary because, um, you know, it, it is stressful to run those clinics. But I, oh, was, yeah. I was grateful that you and I were able to, to spend some time together. And that's the unique thing with, with baseball is it is such a diverse community, but really small community. And I think that's what makes it great about our community. And, um, you know, talk about being a baseball parent. Um, you know, I, I think it's great for people to hear that side that you're, you're in the CIA, but you are a baseball parent. And you just talk about your, your journey as a baseball parent. Oh, well, there's so many funny stories I have. So, you know, so, uh, ultimately, you know, I was overseas for a long time, which means my kids grew up overseas. So the first time my son hit the baseball field was in Amman, Jordan. And it was, uh, and it was a dirt field. I think it was eight years old. And so out we go. And, and, you know, there was, there was a league, um, there's a lot of expats there, a lot of Americans, but it's all dirt and he rolls out there. And so, and it's a co-ed team. So my daughter's playing there too. And she's 10. And I see this Jordanian guy come out and he's the coach. I'm good. You know, you know, he, he, he might know a lot about baseball and he starts pitching underhand. And I, and I come from the stands like, whoa, 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 this is terrible. I'm embarrassing everybody. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, they're too young to be throwing, you know, to be thrown to overhand. And I, so I fired him on the spot, um, uh, took over and, uh, and threw kind of overhand. Um, and that was kind of the first time I was uh, coaching, uh, you know, my kid, but you know, it's, it, you know, it's really interesting because he came back, we came back from overseas and, and my son actually probably was, um, it, it was an interesting place because, you know, he was behind all these other players and this crazy competitiveness of travel baseball that starts at 10 or 11. It's, 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 it's ridiculous. Um, so, so he kind of developed later, which I think, you know, there was no pressure on him. So he really had a love of the game, um, that I think sometimes kids lose after a while. And so, yeah, what a baseball journey, you know, from the, from the dirt fields of the middle East back to fields of Northern Virginia. Any other organized sports for them in, in Jordan? Yeah, they play soccer, of course. Um, which was, uh, which was, which was fantastic. And, uh, you know, that, that's kind of the national sport. I mean, well, it's the international sport, you know, of the world. So. So he, and he loves the soccer this day. It's, it's really funny. You take a look on, on his, tra- has, you know, he's driving around a pickup truck and, and he's got all his baseball stuff and all the baseball stickers, but then he has his Liverpool sticker. He's a fanatical Liverpool fan. So English premier league is something that he loves, but I think that that was, that was kind of born from living overseas for a long time and seeing all those games on satellite television and, you know, all the different countries we lived in because soccer is this, you know, international sport with, with a huge following. I just stumbled on Netflix has a doc series called the playbook and it's on five different coaches and doc rivers was one of them, which was phenomenal. But Jose Moreno, who I knew nothing about, um, talk about a guy who's got some confidence in himself, but all about the team, but had won championships in all the European leagues. That was his goal as a coach. He left some really successful teams to go coach another team because that was his goal was to win in all three leagues, Spain, Italy, and, and England. And he did. He won in all three leagues, which is, is crazy. But, yeah, us here in the States, you don't really – you get it a little bit with soccer, but it's, it is. It's it's the world sports. They're so passionate I think, about I think it. a way to compare a coach – you know, or a, a, a manager of an English Premier League team or, or the, the other leagues, the Super Leagues 
in Europe, it's like it's like you're the you're the manager of either the Red Sox or the Yankees. There is staggering pressure to win, and if you don't win, you're out. Yeah, yeah. They they cut the they cut it. Like you have right. one bad season and you're done. They called it getting sacked, and yep, that's, that's right. what he was like. Hey, you just assume that you're going to get sacked at some point. So so one of the things in the post COVID era, I got to find a way to get him to Liverpool. So we got to go see an English Premier League uh, league game. I think that'll be that'll be fun working around baseball. So we just got we got to figure that out. So. That's how a, did you handle coaching both them? I mean, you said you kind of got thrown into it, but how did you right. handle it at that age with them? Well, it was it was it was easy because you know uh, uh, it was just something I, I wanted to actually get the kids ready to come back to the states. So you know, one of the things you worry about there's there's all there's, I mean, we could talk for hours about being you know what what it was like for kids of of intelligence officers, kids of the CIA. I mean, my kids actually saw when I was inside a U.S. embassy, it got hit. By, by a terrorist attack and, and you know they were sitting there in tears thinking their you know that their parents were killed um, but but starting baseball in Jordan was important I thought because I knew we were coming back and so then you kind of jump back into little league and and we you know we live in a town in Vienna Virginia where baseball is a religion um, and Vienna Little League is super competitive so I come back and and you know there are kids who've been you know on all-star teams at 10 and 11 and I'll never forget that that first year when my son um, you know he got five hits. Uh, you know, his first year of, of playing what they call majors, his 11 year old year. Um, and, you know, he was, he was the kid who, who, you know, when, when he, when he came up to bat, like you'd see other people start like cringing because he knew it was just, it was, it was awful. I felt terrible for him, but he was really cool. Cause he's 11. He said, dad, we're going to work all winter. So then I agreed to coach his little league team um, for his 12 year old season where, where he then, you know, and it's, I mean, he, he busts his butt all winter goes out, you know, hits, hits 18 home runs in his little league season is the best player in the league goes on to, you know, to make varsity as a freshman in high school. So, but, but that, that kind of experience we had together and you remember, and it goes back to even my leadership principles. You remember those, those times where, where, where times were tough. And so it teaches a lot about humility. So I was always very nice to other parents and, and boy, I tell people all the time. The other thing too, is like, like for the parents of little leaguers, like this is not going to decide if they're going to make the New York Yankees or not. I mean, they're 10. And, 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 but people freak out if they don't make the all-star team. And, you know, my kid never made the all-star team until his last year. I'll tell you what, some of the best ones I ever coached at the college level had tasted some sort of failure before they got there and coached some kids that struggled in college because they had never failed before. And this was their first taste of it. And it is a culture shock for that first taste when you get handed to you. And I, I got handed to me early. Um, I was not very good early on, but worked at it and stayed with it. And I think that helped me in high school and that helped me in college because I had to to work through it at an earlier age. And you don't want them to get completely crushed by it, but the ones that are resilient and work through it, they end up being great at the end of it. Absolutely. I mean, so, so, so back to being a baseball parent, you know, if you're a baseball parent, you know, your kid is going to be the one who makes the last out. Your kid is going to be the pitcher who gives up the game winning home run. And, 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 if, and, if, and if you or your kid can't handle that, baseball is the wrong sport. It's, it's evil. And you know this. I mean, it'll crush your soul. Or you just realize that it's a long season, that your, your, whole, your, your whole baseball playing career is a marathon. And, and, you know, and such is life. And you kind of pick yourself up by your bootstraps and, 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 and get up. The great thing is there's always another game really, really soon, soon after. So, you know, you got to brush it off and then, and then off you go. My son was a catcher, too. So if he's having a bad day at the plate, he's got a lot of responsibility, you know, behind the dish. And so there's you know, there's ways to kind of look at this, but it's, it's so much parallels to life. I, I love that because it's a, uh, you know, that it's a, uh, it's, it's something that will teach you a lot about, about kind of, uh, you know, dealing with adversity and, and moving forward when times are tough. 
your path to the CIA, how does that happen? I mean, that's not a, a normal path. Um, you're, oh. you're the only one I know that's ever been in the CIA. <laughs> so uh, how did you get there? So, so it's a, it's a great journey because it just, you know, little things happened along the way. So uh, I'm, I'm of Greek background. So, you know, I was born in Greece, but my mom is American. So, so we were able to go back. So we, we, I grew up in New Jersey, but we went back in the summers. So I got to see what life was like outside of the country. And then, and then when I was 10, my dad who was a college professor, took a sabbatical and taught in Algeria and, you know, a small country in North Africa or a big country in North Africa. And so when I was 10 years old, he was there for the year. I, I you know, somehow, and again, I, I can't believe as a parent, I would do this. My mom put me on a plane alone and I, off I went flying all the way, you know, via Paris to, to Algeria. And my father and I um, spent, spent a month traveling 2000 miles to the Sahara desert in a Volkswagen minibus. And I fell in love with the Middle East. And so, you know, these are kind of strange things. And then it's so all of a sudden I have this kind of worldly view and I probably watched too many, you know, read too many Tom Clancy novels and CIA was really the only thing I wanted to do. Um, I, uh, and, and, you know, I, I applied right out of, out of college and it's the only job I ever had until I wrote this book. I mean, it's pretty crazy. I'm really not qualified either. It, my son would argue I'm not qualified to be a little league coach, but you know, a little bit of baseball, a lot of intelligence operations. And now I wrote this book, but it's a, it was, it was an amazing journey. So where did you do your undergraduate work at? So I went to Cornell university, both undergraduate and, and graduate school. Um, which was, which was funny. Cause I, you know, in my fraternity, we had some baseball players and, and Cornell is in upstate New York. And I, you know, we never saw them. They were down I coached in, there. Uh, I coached uh, summer baseball in upstate New York. So Cornell beautiful. was in the league. So yeah, beautiful summertime, but not in the winter. Uh, yes. And, and they're, they're, I had a friend I mean, from high so, school that, that went to Cornell for a year and right. could not deal with uh, <laughs> the winters. And he transferred cold. to UC Berkeley that, that next go. year. Yeah. Talk about switches of schools. He went from so, Cornell so you, to, to UC I think Berkeley. What the team ends up doing, they spent a lot of time down in Florida, down in the South. And I think there's only a couple home games. Um, and, and, you know, one of my, one of my fraternity brothers, a baseball player was from California. So I think he was always wondering what the world he did, but it's a great school. And, uh, and, and, you know, you, you actually see some, there, there's a bunch of players from around here in Northern Virginia who, who get recruited to go to Cornell each year. I mean, clearly because the academics, you know, people are really kind of excited for that opportunity. Uh, but yeah, it's cold. Talk about the training piece for the CIA then. I mean, how, how long do is the training then before you get sent out? It's a long time. And so, you know, it, it's one of the things that just like everything else, you know, in life, you know, you have to be prepared for, for going to what is, you know, the big league. So, so you can, you, you get recruited based on a skill set, based on personality traits that they're looking for. So it's everything from kind of the, the type, type A, you know, you know, alpha male or female, but also people who are really kind of curious about other cultures, um, you know, who, who want to learn different languages. And so, you, you know, and, and, and are, have ability to operate on their own. And then they send you training for about a year. So there's, you know, there's a facility. It's, it's you know, I, I can't talk about it in public, but everyone seems to know what it is, you know, where it is. But it's, they send you for a year of what they call tradecraft training. So that's how to detect surveillance, how to do dead drops, how to actually recruit someone, which is, you know, a little bit of how to be a salesperson, but it's how to spot, assess, develop, and recruit someone to spy for the United States, which is a big deal because, you know, they're putting, you know, their life in your hands. Um after, after a year of training and then, and then language school, because they're going to teach you how to speak, you know, a language like Arabic or Farsi or, or Chinese or Russian, then off you go under your, under your, you know, your, your postings overseas. Um, but, you know, the, the, the entire process is pretty lengthy because they also do a long background check. Um, so it, it, it can take a couple of years before you're kind of out the gate and onto your first posting, but they want you to be ready because one of the interesting things, and it's opposite to kind of the world of athletics is, 
because our job is to stay under the radar, is to stay clean. Um, the youngest CIA officers, the youngest operations officers are the ones who do some of the most sensitive work. So early on in the career is when you are fully trained up and you're really sharp is when you actually gonna be at your best. And as you get later on in your career, while you're really smart at stuff, you go on to management. Um, and so it's a little bit opposite than in, than in you know, the baseball or the athletic world where you see someone you know, have MVP, MVP caliber years after their couple of years after their rookie season. No, rookies in CIA are actually, are actually the ones who do the hardest and, and toughest jobs um, uh, because they're still clean. They're, they're not known to hostile intelligence services. So it's pretty exciting. I and mean, there's no way you have such a life where, you know, a couple of years out of training, you're doing things that, you know, people's lives in your hands and a lot of money and a lot of responsibility. And it's a, it's a lot, a lot, it's a lot to put on the shoulders of, uh, of young men and women. So how long until then you switched over to a management position? So, you know, that was when my fun ended. Um, uh, you know, it, 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 it is, it's like going from yeah. playing to an assistant yep. to a head coach. Like it, there's so many more responsibilities when you have other people underneath you. That's, that's, it, it's, it runs a hundred percent true. Um, and, and you actually, so, so you are not the one who is conducting the agent meeting. So when I say, you know, we're meeting an agent, that's a foreigner that the CIA has recruited to spy for the United States. You're out in the street, you do a surveillance detection route over several hours. Maybe you're changing your clothes, putting a wig on, you know, you're dumped out of a car I and mean, all that cool stuff you see, but you don't do that anymore. When you become a manager, you manage others who do that. Now it's really important. And because there are some really tough decisions you have to make, uh, but, but you have a, you have a, you know, maybe two or three operational tours in the field before, you know, maybe that for maybe after about a decade or so you get into management. Um, one of the interesting things that CIA has not been great about, and I, it's actually, it's, it's a good topic for here is some of the best operations officers don't make the best managers, just like some of the best baseball players might not make, um, you know, the best leaders in the clubhouse. And sometimes you get you know, players, just, just like just like intelligence officers who weren't that great, you know, uh, uh, at the at the craft itself, were not the superstars, but make great managers. And so, you know, it's kind of interesting parallel. How long did it take you then? You switched to a manager's position. How long did it take you until you felt like you had a handle on what that job is? Well, that's that's the that's a that's a really important point because I look back at my first management job, management jobs and I cringe a little bit. And I was like, oh, we all did. I mean, when like, we all I, first started coaching, like it, it takes a while to figure it out. It really does. It, it takes a while and it, it takes it's it's not the concept necessarily of of decision making under pressure. It's more of how you deal with people and the more experience you get and, and you understand because when you first become a manager or you know, in management, you still stuck with that concept of it's all about you and you have to remove that and understand. Actually, it's not about you. It's about motivating others. And a lot of times you see younger managers who, are, who don't manage with empathy or compassion, who are really total hard asses and tough. And sometimes it's necessary, but, but a lot of times, you know, uh, uh, you know, you have to kind of take a step back. And, and, and in the end of the day, what, what is most important, what you're judged on at CIA in a management role is not only overseeing operations, but, but how you build, you know, how you build your, your, your future generation, you know, how you, how you uh, uh, develop people. Um, and so, I certainly look back. I mean, I, I remember before I left CIA, I, I actually read, you know, I, I read some old cables that I wrote when I was a manager and I was like, oh my God, because I was actually still talking about myself. It wasn't, it wasn't the team. It was about me. And boy, I'll tell you, your managers at the senior level, the senior management don't give a rat's ass about you. They just want to make sure your unit succeeds. Your unit succeeds if you develop your people. And 
maybe in baseball has the same kind of kind of parallels. The best managers, you know, understand that. What were some of your tips for managing people? Oh boy, it's a, you know, there's 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 a couple of great ones. It's actually their principles in my book, Clarity and Clarity and Crisis. I think you know um, one of my one of my key ones is you know I call the glue guy, and I talked about it in my speech at the convention. But but the glue guy is just identifying that kind of indispensable oh glue gal, excuse me, both. But identifying the, the indispensable, you know, members of your team, and they're not going to be your superstars. So, you know, so I always talk about for me, you know, it would be the support officer in a CIA station. Um, you know, in, in, in baseball, it could be the, the clubhouse attendant or, the, or, or, you know, in college, you're man like you are a college coach, your you're athletic manager. trainer, the, I, the managers. Were I got so important. much information from the athletic trainer right. on what was going on with our guys because they're around them in the in the training room. I felt like right. the athletic trainer you need and your strength coach. Absolutely. And so and so if the team succeeds, you know, as you look back. So one of the things I would remember, I would call an all hands meeting. We, we ran a great operation. Maybe we caught a high value target or, or if it was in a war zone, you know, we, the operation ended with us, you know, taking out a terrorist target. I made a mistake early on of kind of lauding all those superstars, but forgetting about the people behind the scenes who really make it happen. Later on in my career, I kind of flipped. And, and so, for example, as a manager, when I was the most senior, we had management structures in the station. We would always have someone called the chief of support, which is exactly that. Chief, that person would be a key part of the management team. But you only get that. You only get that understanding after being around for a while. And baseball would be the same exact, you know, you know, same exact thing. And, and, and you know, you understand you just got to develop people. And, you know, one of the other the other key kind of principles I talk about is, you know, I, I call it family family values. But, um, you know, if, if you want people to kind of follow you into battle, um, uh, you know, no doubt they have to believe in, in, in each other. And so, you, you know, fostering that that teamwork, you see great baseball teams, for example, you know, the Washington Nationals a couple of years ago. Um, you know, make that historic run and they had the baby shark and all the nutty stuff they did. Well, you know, uh, you know, that stuff works. Um, I remember, you know, uh, getting Madison high school baseball, they went on a, they went on a great run and won a conference championship. They somehow got a, got this pet fish that they named and they brought this damn goldfish to every game. It traveled down to South Carolina where they won a huge tournament. It sounds stupid, but, but, you know, you understand that when you kind of have that, that family environment, it's uh, it's incredibly helpful. And, you know, and, and it's easy to do that if you, you know, easy to foster that. You just have to kind of make a make it a point to do so. Yeah, we would find stuff along the way. And like we'd put it, we'd put dolls in the dugout. We'd put yep. dolls in the bullpen, like whatever we felt like. I think it takes a little bit of the pressure off them, too, sure. because they're able to release a little bit. And I don't think you make it too big sometimes when you when you find some of those common things to themes to, to jump around, jump and yep. gravitate to. I mean, my, when, when I look at my leadership principles, it's really interesting. This isn't rocket science. Same thing with managing a baseball team. I mean, uh, uh, you know, so uh, I didn't get my MBA. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't go to school um, or, or I have not read, you know, tons of like the really smart, you know, leadership books. All of my principles were based on just time in the third world, and, you know, and time and mostly time and failing and then coming up with some of these ideas. Um, and, but I really think it's applicable, you know, across any, any line of work, but you know, I, I love the sports world. So that's why I love talking to you and talking, talking about these leadership principles in, in athletics. Cause it's, it just, it, it, there, there's such a, there's such a parallel. Um, I think folks will get a lot out of it. Your management team, how did you help them work through confrontation with each other? Well, that, that's a, that, that's a, that's a great question. Cause it's not necessarily um, uh, your, your individuals, your players, for example, or my case officers, this is, this is amongst managers. So, you know, you, you, you come, you, you go through a process where at first you try things like I'm the boss. This is kind of be this, 
dictatorial mindset. And that you realize that doesn't work. But if you want to get people to follow you and, and you are the person who in the end is going to make the decision, but you have to give them say. So, you know, have have a a, a, a culture in which, you know, decision making can be such as, all right, we have this big, you know, uh, we have a big decision to make. Everyone gets a say. Um, you're going to take this all in as your leader, then you're going to make the decision. But at the end of the day, if, if if you're, I don't know what, if you want one of your coaches, or for me, if it was my deputy chief of station or base, wanted to go a different direction, but he or she had that opportunity to weigh in, they knew that they had been heard, um, uh, then decision-making becomes uh, a, a lot easier. But you know, the worst thing is when you have people in an organization who don't feel that they're heard. That's a, such a, that's, that's a toxic culture that's very hard to, uh, uh, you know, to, to break. Um, and boy, kind of the old school way of I'm the dictator, dictator, nobody else, that just doesn't work. And it particularly doesn't work with the kind of younger generations of managers um, or, for example, or, or even or even players or for, for my case, you know, uh, uh, operations officers. Um, they expect you to listen. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, what's what's the old adage? If you're talking, you're not listening. Um, be open minded, have an open door. Uh, and then and then when you make a decision, if you have that kind of the, the ability for people to feel empowered, they'll follow you even if they don't want to. Um, but uh, but they have to be at least heard beforehand. When you're lining up assets, I mean, that person is not an American. Right. How do you eventually get them to make that decision that they are going to help the United States? Sure. So, you know, so the, the process of recruitment, you know, I call it it's not only psychology 101, it's 501. So. So ultimately, what you're doing is you're identifying someone, for example, in the, in the foreign ministry or the armed services of another country, a hostile country. So it's whether it's Russia, China, Iran, Pakistan, you know, whatever, or, or Pakistan, maybe a country is sort of friends, but not. But ultimately, you're looking for vulnerabilities. So this person uh, is going to is going to betray their country. Now, we work for we work for the United States government. So so fortunately, we work for a country that has that has a strong foundation in democratic ideals and beliefs. So a lot of times people from other, other countries will work for us because they believe in what we stand for. Um, and then you take it a step further. And so maybe this, this individual has some vulnerabilities such as um, they want their kids to go to university in the US or they have, they have uh, members of their family who have medical conditions that need US care. Maybe they're, they're members of a minority, a religious sect that they've hit a glass ceiling in an authoritarian state. Um, and we appeal to them that way, but ultimately you know, and I always, I always joke at this. It's not, not because of my wily ways as an operations officer. I'm going to convince you to do this. You're kind of predisposed already and you're just bringing them across the line. And, and the, the way I always felt good about it is, you know, look, intelligence is the second oldest profession, you know, I think behind prostitution. So, so intelligence is always there on all sides. But for the United States, we have an inherent advantage because we believe in something. You know, we believe, that, you know, the, the foundations of, of free press and freedom of religion, you know, and, and, and democracy really do mean something to the rest of the world. And so, you know, that, that sounds very idealistic, but it, but it does work. And I think Americans need to hear this. You've, you've been to other parts of the world and right. you see how people do value what we believe in. And we don't always get that now with the media where, I, you know, and I have an 18 year old and a 15 year old and, and their views on America are different at times because I think of, of they don't see that that this still is the best country in the world because of all the things that we believe in. And you're not going to get persecuted or executed for, for some of the religious beliefs you have or political right. beliefs that they are in other countries. You know, there's, there's the old adage um, that I believe in that I think I had to believe in, whether it was myself at the CIA or the kind of, the, you know, or my friends in the special operations community, 
I mean, to, to do what we have to do, we have to believe in the concept of America is a, is a shining city on the hill. Um, and, you know, we're not perfect. And so, and so I'm not going to be Pollyannish. You know, there, there, you know, we have a lot of problems. We got to fix them um, uh, internally. But um, I do believe that, you know, that, that concept of, of as America is a beacon for hope, because if you live in the third world, like I did, and you see, you know, uh, you know, incredible poverty or a lack of political freedom or lack of religious freedom, regardless of what problems we have in the United States, it still is, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the best of, of, of what is it, you know, in, you know, imperfect system, which is democracy. And so, you know, and, and one, of the, one of the really neat things is my kids, um, having grown up in the third world, really do believe that. And, and look, they're very passionate and critical. My daughter is a super activist now, and I, you know, I love her and she, God, I can't read her Facebook page because it's going to get me in trouble. But, but, she, but, but, but with all that, all of her activism to make America better, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, particularly with, um, you know, civil rights movement, um, uh, she still had remembers the times, uh, in, in the third world where you see really terrible poverty, um, and, and you see, you know, you know, police forces on the street. And so, so, uh, uh, boy, the, the, our kids had an incredible education. They have this, you know, incredible multicultural view of the world. You know, they, they grew up as a minority, as an American living in the Arab world. So then they come back to the United States and they are very accepting of everybody, of every culture. Um, and so it's a, it was a, it was, I think it was pretty neat for them. And, um, and it kind of taught a lot, taught a lot of that to me as well, you know, appreciating the United States. How would you fix things right now? Oh boy. I think, you know, it's, it, there's such a toxic, um, uh, you know, a, a political culture. Now, the thing that disturbs me the most, look, there, there should be debate. I mean, if you actually, I was, I was a bit encouraged. We're built on it. I mean, America was built on debate. Right. So, so, you know, uh, President Biden's speech to Congress and then Senator Scott's rebuttal, while it seems to have generated some controversy, actually was normal. That's good. <clears throat> so, so nothing was wrong with that. Um, I think having a little less, and I, I don't want to get too political, a little less crazy out there, like, like, let it be about debate. Like, so there's the, you know, the, the Democratic Party believes in a, in a robust activist U.S. government. The Republican Party does not. That's an awesome debate to have. Um, but it doesn't have to get kind of, uh, uh, you know, what we saw kind of in the previous four years is, as, as completely kind of, uh, uh, out of control. I mean, look, I, I think, you know, the, the other part that I tell my friends overseas who really do look at America all the time is, you know, we're imperfect, but, but we have an election every four years and, and the American people, you know, generally are pretty good at, at, at course correcting. And, uh, and so, you know, that, so, so I, I still have faith in this country and, um, and, and, you know, I think that, that, uh, you know, it's, it's okay to have, have, have robust political debate and, and, you know, the people ultimately decide. And as long as we kind of keep that, you know, that, that tradition, um, we're going to be okay. Right before you came to film, um, you know, for anybody that doesn't know that we had all of our speakers come here to film in house and, and it turned out great, but GQ article, the mystery of the yeah. immaculate concussion came out and, you sent it to me and I read it and I give you a lot of props. You were not feeling the best when you came here to record. And so for, are you feeling better? Yeah, so I am. So, you know, that's a whole other part of my life, kind of the health journey I've, I've gone on. I got, I got, you know, um, you know, injured on, on a, on an overseas trip, um, back in 2017. And, 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 you know, fortunately, you know, and this was, uh, you know, when I, when I taped, I had not gotten there yet, but I, I spent a month at Walter Reed's, uh, traumatic brain injury unit. And so I feel a lot better from that. And so thank you for asking. You know, it's funny that, that, you know, these things kind of are, are part of your life. I always thought that I, you know, I had a lot of enemies around the world. 
with all my time doing, you know, counter-terrorist operations. And, and, you know, finally my number came up. Um, but what was, what was hard for me was that I really fought for healthcare for myself and others for a long time. But fortunately, you know, after, because of that article, um, I think there's been a lot of progress made, but, but I'll tell you one thing, if you want to, you want to, uh, you know, a sobering time, you know, go to Walter Reed's, you know, the, which is the, you know, the, the Naval facility in Bethesda, Maryland. Um, I spent a lot of time there with, with a lot of special operations, you know, colleagues, um, who had traumatic brain injuries, but you also go, and if you go do physical therapy, you know, I, you know, I was the only one in there. It was not a, you know, a, a, you know, a singular double amputee and that is sobering. Um, there's a lot of times I would leave there, you know, I, I, I would, I went there cause I had these, you know, I've, I've had these kind of terrible, terrible migraine headaches and it's gotten a lot better. And then I'd come back after seeing, you know, having PT and, and seeing these, you know, what, what, you know, the, the, the courage of those who have suffered a lot more than I am. And, and uh, boy, the last 20 years have been, have been rough on a lot of people, uh, you know, who really fought for the United States. So, but thank you for asking. And, and I am feeling better. You know, the place gave me kind of tools to cope with my injuries and also hope um, as well. And then and look, I have the book coming out now, so I got to be, there's, there's a lot of positives coming, coming forward. So I'm excited about that. What are some other things that people can look forward to and in diving into clarity and crisis? Sure. So, so I think, you know, the, the thing that I, that I think people are going to enjoy are the stories. You know, the one thing is as a CIA officer, um, there's so much aura around those, those three letters, you know, so, and, and there haven't been a lot of people who've come out and, and talked about their career in the CIA. And, and so I talk about my leadership principles and, and I think people will relate to them, but they're really going to relate to them because I tell stories of, 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 you know, special operations or intelligence operations. Uh, and, and what's even more relatable is most of it is, how, you know, how I dealt with failure. And how I and how I really embrace kind of principles like like humility, um, you know, not believing my own hype. And so, um, you know, the 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 kind of the the management techniques that I used, the principles that I used, um, you know, later on, all had to do with okay. So so when times are easy, if you're if you're you know you're playing for the SEC championship and you're up by five runs in the ninth inning, you know, the, the, those those are not tough times. I'm talking about how to lead when times are tough. Um, and, and when there's that, that occurrence, you're actually in that comfort zone, you know, the, the gray area, the times of ambiguity, the times where, where other people want to flee, you're like, I got this. And, and I think that's applicable in life and look what happened with COVID. So my principles would, would apply to how we deal with COVID as a business, or if you're an ER doctor or a nurse and you're slammed that night with a ton of patients, or you have this huge, you know, uh, uh, you're, 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 you know, you're selling, I don't know, computers or something like that. And. And there's, there's, you know, uh, there's a lot of pressure on you to deliver how you operate in that time of ambiguity. When you, when you find that inner peace and calm, that's what I was able to do after a lot of failure. And so that's what I, that's what I think people are going to get a lot out of, uh, uh, out of this book. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's being able to say, send me when, when times are, times are tough and, and being comfortable. This is, Hey, this is my, this is the gray area. I love this. I'm comfortable here. Everyone else has run away. I got this. And you really do feel that way. And it's okay. And, and, and if you follow kind of the principles as, as, a, as, a, as I go forward in the book. How long did it take you to develop those habits? I, I mean, I, you're probably always going to be a little bit scared, correct? But, you know, rather than run from it, you know, how long did it take you to develop those habits out in the field that, okay, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be able to get through this. So, you know, it took my entire career. And so only, you know, I was a really good manager really late in my career because I learned all this stuff. And so a lot of times in, you know, in, in you know, in the principle, you know, one of the, one of the things I talk about is, you know, adversity is the performance enhancing drug to success. So you have to fail. And I talked about two, two elements of failure, you know, two, two uh, uh, operations 
that took place a decade apart. One was in Iraq and one was in Afghanistan. The first in Iraq, I failed and, and an agent of ours, an Iraqi died. The second one in Afghanistan, where I did things a lot differently, I was much more patient, um, I was much more mature. We ended up running an operation where we, where we ended up uh, uh, catching and, and ultimately killing a Taliban uh, uh, target who was responsible for the deaths of many Americans. And so, so I, I use that as a great example in, in, you know, in, in how adversity can make you really grow. Um, and then, of course, you just throw out, hey, you know, Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team and you got it. And then my favorite baseball analogy is, you know, the, the 0-3 Red Sox and the 0-4 Red Sox. You know, the 0-3 Red Sox, you know, when Aaron Boone hits a walk off this, you know, in game seven, crushes all of, all of New England. But in 2004, when the Red Sox were down three games to none, the Yankees again, you know, um, you have Kevin Millar get up there, smile and say, hey, we're going to shock the world. Like, bring it. And they did. There's no way they win that that series if they had, you know, if they had experienced what happened in the year before. So, you know, these are the, it's, it's the, it's the, you know, I, I love to, I'm a storyteller. I love telling stories. That's well, what and you we told do a, when we hang you, out, you know. You told a great story about signing off on a mission and you weren't even there. You know, tr- yeah. talk about trusting the people underneath you. You signed off on a mission and you weren't even there. So I, this, this is kind of the culminating, you know, um, uh, you know, principle of, of, or it's all the principles are building blocks. So in the end, when we say, um, you know, okay, so, so give me an example of what this would look like. And, and that's where I talked about finding clarity in the shadows. So ultimately, uh, uh, it's, it's an operation where I had returned from Afghanistan. Um, my unit, my team was still there. And we were going after a really senior Taliban member. Um, now, everything was gone had gone wrong, you know, whether it's our ISR coverage, you know, our surveillance coverage, um, you know, communications are down. Uh, uh, there's not the usual, you know, um, clarity, the usual situational awareness that we would have in executing such a mission. And, and I remember uh, I was called down by very senior agency folks and they said, okay, you just came back from there. Like the team there wants to go, what do you think? And I just said, do it. And they're like, how can you say that? And I said, well, thinking back now, it's because you know, I, I was with these the, the members of my team for over a year. I in in you know I, I gave them kind of the building blocks, the foundations of we actually recruited and trained a, an agent, a foreigner, to you know to put this Taliban member on the X. So you know again, it's a process piece. I you know I call it the process monkey. You know, check we got that. You know, family values. The team was incredibly tight. Um, you know, I I was a people developer. Another principle of mine in which. When I was gone from the base, when I was there in Afghanistan, I would always have one of my officers take up the role as acting chief. Well, the lead right then on the ground had done that. So in the end, when I said to the, our senior leadership, yeah, let's go, we got this. And they say, how can you do this? It was, it was because I had total confidence in a chaotic situation because I put these building blocks. And, and one of the senior officers said to me, said, your career is on the line right now if this fails. I was like, all right, fine. And, and, and afterwards, I put this together afterwards, but I was like, that was incredible for me to, 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 to see how comfortable I was in making that decision. Now, fortunately, the operation was a success. Maybe we don't have this conversation if it wasn't, but, but, it, but it really taught me a lot. And you can have that same feeling if you're a baseball manager, you know, and, and you know, you're down by one run in the seventh inning. You got to make a decision about do I take my starting pitcher out for reliever, middle relief, or, or who's going who's gonna to pinch hit. But you put all those, those processes together that you did, you know, that you worked on all year. And then you make decisions and it doesn't seem that hard when many people think that it, that it would be. So, uh, you know, and you find that, you find that comfort in the gray. How much does go behind the scenes that us normal Americans don't understand about keeping America safe? Well, so, so a tremendous amount. And so I will tell you that after nine 11, 
um, uh, you know, the tax on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, um, the CIA was crushed because, you know, because we failed. That was our, that was our view. So there was the 9-11 Commission. There are, all, there are all these things about why it happened. But on a personal level, you know, we thought of ourselves, you know, we're the goalie. Like, we can't let anything, anything get by. And we did. And so, you know, there are really unsung heroes in the, in the intelligence special operations world who, you know, dedicate their, their lives to ensuring that Americans are safe. And I think one of the proudest things is I served along the, these, these individuals. And, and you know, the, the stories will never be told. Um, but if you think about, you know, what happened on 9-11, now we're, we're winding down 20 years, a 20-year war in Afghanistan. Lots of controversy over, you know, should we stay or not? But the bottom line is America has not been attacked since. So we, you know, and, and that is what we absolutely ensured or were, were tasked to ensure never happens. And there's a lot of pride in the intelligence community about that. Um, uh, and, and look, you know, the one thing is you, you become very thick skin. You know, everyone likes to beat up on the CIA sometimes. Um, you know, it's, it's, and, and, but, but, you know, that's okay because it's not our role. It's not our job to respond. One of the things, incidentally, I do a lot of these days is I talk about my leadership principles, but also some other principles about wellness and stuff that you and I talk about taking care of each other. But I talk about this with 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 uh, police officers, with police departments, because in a lot of ways, and this is not defending anything. I mean, I you know, I, I politically, I'm you know, I, I believe there should be police reform, but I also I'm incredibly pro police. They're there for a reason. They're there for and and our, but our police, and I look at my police, the police officers in my community in Vienna. And I'm, I'm super supportive of them, but they're, you know, they're, they're feeling that they're not being appreciated um, because of everything that's happening in the country. And, and I think a lot of CIA officers or in the intelligence community can understand that um, because sometimes bad things happen and you get kind of bunched in with everyone. So, so I, I, one of the really interesting things I've been able to do is talk to a lot of police officers, uh, you know, about that um, and, the, and, 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 and ultimately, you know, and how they have to kind of be kind of, you know, both mentally, physically, emotionally, uh, you know, resilient. Um, but, uh, yeah, so look, you, you, you choose to work in a profession, you're not going to get a pat in the head. You're not going to get anything written about you in the paper. Uh, and you accept that. How are you able to separate what you did and, and not bring some of that home? I think I w- right. didn't do a good job at times as a coach, especially a young coach of, of not bringing my work home with me. How were you able to separate that out? So, so it's, it's very difficult and, you know, it, you know, it, it, it takes you a while. I mean, there's the old adage, you know, you know, don't love your job because you, your job's not going to love you back. Um, but but the, the thing is with, you know, being a CIA operations officer, this is not a nine to five job. You actually work at night. So, so you know, it took me a while and, and families are struggling. The divorce rates are very high. Um, a lot of my friends- Coaches, have, coaches as well. You know, uh, a lot of my friends, you know, uh, uh, especially those of us who spent years in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, spent a lot of time away from your, the, your, your families. Um, one of the things that, again, as I started learning later in my career is, is, you know, you have to, you have to integrate families into this life. And so, so a lot of times, so what we do is we run an operation that's super compartmented and you're not supposed to go home and tell your family. And then later in my career, I'd tell my, tell my officers, go home and tell your family, like your wife is not going to betray you to the Russians. Like, I mean, but, but she's got to know that you're out every night for the next six weeks and, and she's not going to know what you're doing, but just rest assured, you're not at a strip club. <laughs> you know, you're not having an affair. You're actually doing God's work for the United States of America against our enemies. And so, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's things like if I knew I'd have to be out at night and you could say things as a coach, I'd, ma- I'd come home for dinner. You know, I'd make sure, or I, or I do something where I, or, or there's events where you can do things with your family. So for example, I talked about in the operations world, spotting, assessing, developing, recruiting. If I want to go after, you know, a Chinese diplomat, for example, 
well, you know what? Maybe I'm going to have my family befriend the entire family of, of the Chinese. Maybe my kids will, will do this. I have incredible stories of my children having playdates with like Middle Eastern rulers, kids, ultimately, so I can get close to them. Um, but, but then you're with your family as well. So look at, you know, your career is a marathon. Um, if you don't have a happy family life, you're really not going to be successful over, you know, over the long term. Hey, is that your fail forward moment where you, you had a mission that went, went bad and then you found a way to, to get over that? Well, I think, I think a perfect example is, you know, so my son, we were in the Middle East, you know, my wife was pregnant. She was due to deliver. We didn't want to have our child in a, in a Middle Eastern hospital. It was a you know, North African country. The medical care is not great. We come back home. My wife uh, gives birth to our son. I have three weeks of paternity leave. But boom, I get a, I get a, uh, uh, you know, a, an alert from our headquarters that you got to get back on a plane, an agent, a foreigner, one of our spies, a penetration of a terrorist group just triggered a meeting out in East, East Africa. I was supposed to have three weeks of, of leave. Now, there is a backup operations officer. I didn't have to go, but I'm the badass. So I was like, I'm on it. I left my family. My wife just delivered, went, went, flew, you know, all the way, you know, several thousand miles. I remember I was supposed to meet with this, with this agent. Um, I'm in this dark kind of dingy, you know, you know, uh, 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 safe house. I'm wearing kind of a full Arabic headdress. I have a Glock 19 strapped to my, I wait weeks. He never shows the operation doesn't go down and I have to come back to my wife. I missed all my paternity leave. My work doesn't care. I still got to go back to work. But ultimately that taught me after the fact, like, you know what? I should have taken a knee. There's a backup officer that could have done this. Um, you know, I don't have to be you know, Superman here. And so that was my moment of failing. Um, when I, when I realized that, you know, you, you, you know, uh, you know, the long-term health of, of your family, um, you know, really should be something that you, you consider more now, not to say we don't make sacrifices. And there's times where work is going to say, you know what, we're going to war, you know, you, you know, seeing, and, and you gotta, you gotta say goodbye to your family for six months, which is what I do did before we went to Iraq. Um, uh, but there's other times you can make some choices that are a little smarter. And I, and I I'm sure in the, baseball coaching profession, there's, there's, there's many other times where, um, where, you know, you could have probably made, made better decisions that would, would affect your, you know, your, that had an effect on your family, but it's just going to promote more long-term kind of health. You know, speaking of that, did, what habits did you develop? I mean, PTSD is a huge thing with the military. Right. It seems, I mean, I know you've, you've had some issues, but it seems like you're in great shape. I mean, what, what habits did you develop over that course of time to try to help you stay on top of things mentally? So that's, you know, that is, that is something that, uh, that I, I, I became very, you know, much more aware of, I think, my times in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, so, so ultimately, you know, when I first went to Iraq, I wasn't as good about this. When I went to Afghanistan, I went twice early on, and then I went for a year in 2011 to 2012. I, I you know, when I was there and I was, I was, a, I was a, the chief of a paramilitary base on the border with Pakistan, but, you know, I was in the best shape of my life. And so that was, that was all about leaving two hours a day for, for PT. Um, and, and, and the fact of the matter is you can do that. So, you know, maybe not two hours, but an hour, there's no way you can't um, uh, do those things. So, so, you know, for me, it was, it was lifting weights and, you know, doing some cardio, but I love weight. I love lifting. Um, you know, I'm 51 years old. I, 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 I'm going to diverge here, but with my son, who's, who, you know, uh, uh, who plays baseball, um, I didn't like the fact he was squatting more than, more than me. And so I, you know, got, I have a squat rack in the basement and, and I happen to just, uh, uh, get diagnosed. I have an MRI. I've just, uh, uh, shredded, I have a complex tear in my meniscus because at 51, I was pissed that my 18 year old was lifting more than me. So, but, but lifting was huge to me. And so that was, that was really important. 
as I've now progressed into you know later later stages in life, and I know you believe in this, Ryan, is meditation is everything. Um, you know this the idea of you know a little more kind of Eastern Eastern techniques, but but boy, you know meditating every it doesn't have to be every morning. It's but seven thousand years old. I right. I'm like it's yeah. it's been around for seven thousand years. It's you know the East has got a head start on it, and it's now finally to come to the West. But there are so many benefits and. Science is backing it up with brain 100%. scans now. Yep. It backs you, it up. If you, do, if you do the kind of biofeedback or this neurofeedback stuff, and I've gone through all this stuff and I love, totally believe in it, but the point basic meditation is, is incredible. Deep breathing techniques. Um, uh, and so, so if you take a look at, at, at kind of the, the elite of, of the CIA or the elite of the special operations com community, you will see them doing meditation, yoga, stretching, you know, not the, the, you know, not trying to out, you know, max my son on, on squats. Um, but it's a, but it's, it's, it, you know, it's, it's really, really interesting to see how, um, you know, having that kind of healthy kind of, you know, you know, mind and, and, uh, you know, uh, can, uh, can help your overall performance. And so, um, but what you can't do is nothing. Uh, that's the thing is, you know, you got to have something, you got to have some release. The other thing has to do with nutrition. Um, you know, and so, yeah, so again, we talked uh, about that, how the, you know, in the cafeterias, how they had switched a little bit, some of the food options, which I, I think that's the best way, you know, yeah. with willpower, you don't really have willpower cause you're going to run out and, and make some poor choices at the end of the day, if you're trying to fight it all day. So just eliminate some of those, those poor choices that you, you make sometimes just get rid of them if you can. Look, so, so, it, so what you do is you, you, you see in the most kind of, uh, you know, elite performers and everyone loves to talk about this, but it's going to be, you know, mindfulness stuff, you know, again, the meditation, deep breathing, um, it's going to be nutrition. So it's anti-inflammatory diets. It's not having, you know, sodas, sodas around, not eating sweets all the time. Um, uh, you know, it, this stuff works and it works because what it does is allow you to operate, you know, past a time where you would have. So, so, so why does, why does a CIA officer or a Navy SEAL believe in this? It's not because we're all kind of crunchy and we're running around in Birkenstocks, which is fine if you are, it's because it will extend your, you know, your, your, your ability as an operator and, and boy, in the sports world, it's the same thing. Um, if, if, if you tell someone, Hey, if you do yoga every day, you know, if you eat right and you're doing meditation, you can play a couple more years as a professional ball player. A lot of people are going to, are, are, are going to, are going to do it who might not have previously. And then, so, you know, I, I, I'll never forget. I, I, I can say this now because the embassy is closed. I remember arriving at the U S embassy in Sinai, Yemen, and I'm walking in there and I see on the, there, you know, it's, it's, so it's, it's a country in chaos, but there's a nice lawn outside and I see a whole bunch of folks and, and they're doing yoga. And it was our folks and, and kind of, you know, Navy SEALs all doing yoga in the morning. There you go. It's a great way to move. It is yeah. first thing I, you know, I walk, I stretch, I meditate and then I do yoga. So I, mean, I love you talk about meditating all the time. I mean, that to me is extraordinary. That has been so eye-opening for me. It changed my last years of coaching. Yeah. It did. I tell people that all the time. My anxiety levels, and I was—I always ran red. I ran red as a player. I ran red right. as a coach. And so I needed something to get me centered in because if not, I, my brain was going to be all over the map. And so right. my anxiety and my decision-making was much better the last few years as a coach in game um, because of all the things that I was doing up to that point to allow me to. And again, that's part of elite performance is yep. when things get stressful, how are you able to stay centered in and concentrate and focus yep. on the one task that you have to do? Because if not, your performance is going to, is going to struggle as a player. It's going to struggle as a coach. It's going to struggle as a professional if your brain is all over the place. That's a hundred percent right. And, and, you know, and, and, you know, I think in the end, 
especially in a sport. Look, so intelligence operations, you fail all the time. In baseball, you fail all the time. And until you actually actually can, can you know, cannot be consumed by that. Um, now, now, I wouldn't advocate failure because failure is actually not picking yourself up and learning from it and moving forward. Um, uh, you know, but, but, but essentially, you know, uh, if, I, I don't know what's the, what's a more frustrating profession, maybe golf. Um, but, but, you know, the, the, the professions of, uh, of, of, you know, of my baseball world is, is the team, baseball. you know, and you see it all the time. There was a young kid the other day he was, he was beating himself up. This was a little kid on social media, beating himself right. up about having a bad game and, um, golfers it's on them. You yep. know, in baseball, you, you have other people relying on you. And I, I tried to tell them, like, hey, this happens a lot in baseball. And there's a lot of things that happen outside of your performance that dictate whether your team is successful or not. I know we, we get so self-centered in our performance that it's my fault. But there's a lot of pitches in a baseball game that dictate whether a team wins or loses. And, and here's, here's the thing that I, I always looked for when I was a manager looking at my, my operations officers is, is, you know, you know, so, so, okay. So they have this, they run a rock star operation, you know, they get, you know, all sorts of, 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 of kudos and, and praise. I want to see when things, I want to see how they react when things go wrong. Um, and, and I, and I tell that, and I would tell that to my officers all the time. And so, you know, when, when, when times are bad, how is, you know, how do you comport yourself? Same thing on a baseball field. So, so, you know, I, I love high school baseball and I, I, you know, I was involved with travel baseball. So, you know, the parents who kind of lose their mind when their kid's not playing bad and when a whole bunch of coaches are watching don't realize that those coaches are there because they know the kid is good. They want to see what, you know, how they react when, 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 the, when he has a bad day at the plate, you know, and is he, is he slumped down? Is he throwing his, you know, is, is, is uh, his glove in the dugout? All those things because they know it's coming. And if they're going to move to the next level, it's coming. And so, so there's, in some cases, I remember um, thinking about like, okay, so, so I want to see, I, I never would want an operation to fail, but when, the, when it inevitably would is I want to see how everyone reacts right now. That, that's it. That, you know, that this is, this is, this is where, this is how we're going to learn from this. Cause, uh, cause Hey, that's life. So you said June 8th, right? The book's coming out. Right. Yep. Where can people get it? Oh boy. So it's, uh, it's coming out June 8th. It's, uh, it's coming out on, it's, it's on Amazon presale right now. Um, uh, it's clarity and crisis you know, books.com is, is kind of the landing page now. Um, and, and I, you know, I think we're going to do a kind of a lot of, you know, uh, media like this now, and it's, it's going to, it's going to be out there a lot. I'm going to do a lot of speaking, you know, engagements, but, uh, you know, you'll see it. I think we're going to do some events at the international spy museum. Um, so it's going to be, it's going to be out there. I'm, I'm, and you I'm blog posts too, right? Where, where can people find your blog posts? So I, I'm at Twitter's at M polymer. So it's at M P O L Y M E R. So, so my my uh, my Twitter is is a little bit of politics. I'm trying not to do that. It's a lot of baseball. It's a lot about you know my favorite dive bar in the world. I'm with you and, though. You know, I have up. a hard time sometimes because yeah. I I, I want to again. I know stick to sports, but I think people need to see what you believe in sometimes too. Because I'm with you. I I think I'm very wide open for people's beliefs. Um, I have a, a worldview on on things, and so I'm not guarded. So I do want to put it out there a little bit sometimes because right. I just think there's so much gray area with humanity that we need to embrace that gray area. I, I agree. I, I agree. So, so you know, I mean, I gotta. I think you know, being a little less political is probably going to be smart because I'll you know I want you know. What, what did Michael Jordan say? Republicans, you know, Republicans buy sneakers too. So I want everyone on the left and everyone on the right, you know, to, to buy my book. So you'll see me on, on NPR and then you'll see me on Fox and friends. I'm going to promote this all over the place, uh, but it's cl clarityandcrisisbook.com is the right, uh, 
uh, right address. And, uh, and yeah, I hope people enjoy it. I think they're going to love the stories and, uh, it's uh it's uh you know maybe maybe there'll be a second book i gotta i gotta think about what's what next to write about give us a final thought so i think you know you know ultimately um you know life is about failure uh life is about picking yourself up by your bootstraps it's about adversity um and my favorite characteristic is humility and if i could take you know one takeaway that that i try to give everybody whether in my world and intelligence operations or your world in baseball is having that character trait of humility is really going to serve you well um, and so, uh, you know, be humble, don't believe your own hype, but, but be strong and be able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And, uh, and as, as we always achieve the impossible in, in the CIA, you know, um, you know, so can, so can others in, in any profession that they're, that they're in. And I did get your name right again. So I knew you were, yeah. you were pumped. You were dialed in in the beginning. Yeah. I did get Polymeropolis right again. So I, for anybody with the virtual, I was practicing over and over and over again. <laughs> when I had to do your intro for the virtual, I said it like 50 times in a row to make sure I got it right. It's great to see on kind of any kind of uniform. I grew up playing ice hockey. So it might, my, my, you know, my, it was Polymeropolis kind of going in a kind of giant, you know, inverted U. And for my son too, it's hilarious. So the one thing is people never forget you. Um, and my son, who was a catcher, the umpires would love it because they'd sit there the whole game saying, how do you spell your name? How do you spell your name? Um, or how do you pronounce your name or what, you know, whatever. But no, it's a, it, you know, people don't forget with a long Greek last name. So it's, I think it's a, it's been a benefit. Well, Mark, I really appreciate it and enjoy the Nationals game. So I know you've been to a ton of games, so have fun. Thanks. Thanks so much. Great to be with you. And, uh, and I look forward to the, you know, the next convention. Hopefully we'll do this in person, uh, you know, next year. Thanks to Mark for his willingness to share his stories. I've always been fascinated by the military and intelligence services. So glad I introduced myself to him at the Virginia Coaches Clinic. Can't recommend enough. Introduce yourself and start up a conversation with someone. You never know where it will lead you. I also want to extend a huge thank you to all of our service members who lay their lives on the line every day to keep America safe. Thanks again to John Litchfield, Zach Hale, and Matt West in the ABCA office for all their help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email, rbrownlee at abca.org. Twitter, CoachB underscore ABCA, Instagram, RyanBrownlee17, or direct message me via the MyABCA app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you. Don't have